open Sundays, warm and caring staff, child-friendly and Hamish environment. Call them at 718-972-2970. Dr. Yehoshua Cantor, gentle and attentive care. 718-972-2970. Beyond. Welcome to Cosmos of the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Cosmos Magazine. And tonight's show is going to be very interesting because it really is just it really is happening as we speak right now. I want to share with you something that I got involved in. It, it, it may sound a little bit off from the Kashrus area, but it ties into uh, both Kashrus and uh, in health and uh, safety and uh, a lot of other issues as well. Let me tell you that somebody uh, who I know for very, very many years came to me with a, a challenge, and I'll try to give you a little background in it, and then let's see how far it's going to go. We don't know the end of the story because this is just something that started yesterday, basically, and it's continuing now and will be into the future. It seems that there's a product that came out, a Kamut bread. Now, if you're not, if you don't know what Kamut is, that means you haven't been reading up on the new the new grains. Kamut is really an old grain, but it's in the wheat family. And uh, Kamut uh, is, is what's used to, you know, some people find it very helpful. Uh, they feel it's, it's better for them. And people are trying to use, you know, these, some of these newer grains. Anyway, there's a company in Canada that puts out a bread called Paradise Bread. Now this is like kind of raw bread, I think it is. In any event, it's a it it has in it uh, kamut, and it's using the that's what it's basically using. Although actually there's other ingredients here as well, according to the list of ingredients: unbleached kamut wheat flour, water, kamut sourdough made of stone ground whole grain kamut, wheat flour and water. That's how they make the sourdough. Sunflower oil, raw cane sugar, sea salt, fresh yeast, ascorbic acid, etc. Like that's it. Basically, that's all the ingredients. And uh, you know, if you look at a regular bread, bread that's produced and being sold in the stores, it could have a hundred ingredients. This is the whole thing, and it's sold in specialty stores and health food stores. And this gentleman was intrigued by this bread, and I think he bought it and uh, had a concern. What was his concern? says over here the following words. Now, I don't speak French, so forget about my tra- I'm not going to be able to try to pronounce it properly. But the English part, only 1% gluten. Well, I'm sorry, only 1% or less gluten. That's English. And in the French, it says words that mean the same thing. The 1% or less gluten. Now, the problem is that wheat has got plenty of gluten in it. That's why, if you know the people who need gluten-free diets, they do go shopping on Pace, for Pace of products, and they use them all year round. They, they try to stock up at Pace of time on Pace of Dicker products because the Pace of Dicker products do not contain wheat. Very few of them have uh, real wheat. Today you have a lot of products that also have matzo meal, but but really, if you want to buy without matzo meal, you're going to have a gluten-free diet, 
And many people stock up on that. They made to buy cakes and different things, and they, they put it away, and they freeze it, and they use it all year long. And they know they got a guarantee that it's going to be because of the hashkacha and the fear that we have of eating hummus, so that we take a very good control on it. And even those places that don't, have, those hashkachas that don't have a mashkiach tamidi during the course of the year, but for Pesach products, they often have a mashkiach tamidi. It's a very good control system, and that makes everybody happy. But what do they do for the matzah? Matzah, you can't use regular matzah if you're, if you're, if you have this allergy to wheat, if you have celiac or some other allergy to the, uh, the gluten or some other parts of the wheat. So basically what they do is they get oats or spelt. Spelt uh, matzah or oat matzah costs a fortune, but so does uh, the matzah in general cost a fortune. So they, 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 they pay that money, and that's, that's what they get. Now, with this product over here is made with kamut, which is really a wheat. And yet it says only 1% gluten or less. First of all, 1% of what? The whole package? 1% of the whole package is for sure uh, the wheat and the kamut is, is much more than that. So, and, and the kamut is mixed with regular wheat too to make the sourdough. I don't know what we, my, my friend asked the question, what does this mean, only 1% gluten? And the, the, on the package, there are either two or three hashkachas. I'm not able to establish if there's three. Two hashkachas I was able to see in the, in the pictures that were sent to me. Two hashkachas, a, 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 a national hashkacha and a... Uh, what they call Hasidic Jashkacha. So they have two, and, it, and the words say Pas Yisrael. So they, they obviously, you know, are quite aware of what's in this package, and the, the company is trying to work with them, etc. I mean, if it says Pas Yisrael, then they had to make some, some uh, adjustment for that. You see they're prominently displaying the Hasidic Jashkacha together with the, uh, with the national one on the same level. And so obviously they're interested in doing the right thing. But what does it mean, only 1% gluten? Now, this is what was presented to me, and uh, my friend uh, gave me a little bit of an introduction, which I'm going to give you as well. First of all, he's a very bright fellow, this, this, this gentleman, and he's researched it. He says he feels there's a serious health issue that could cause harm to others. So I feel I must speak up. First he called the store that sold it. And he asked them, uh, he spoke to speak to the manager on the phone. The manager seemed very concerned and said he'd look into it. But he came to me because he knows that I'm going to go a little bit past what everybody else does. So I'm now reading from the letter that I got, the email I got from this gentleman. I also spent time checking out the Kamut Wheat Company, because that's a, the company, the Kamut Wheat Company. For years, they advertised that that archaeologists found 36 grains of wheat in a tomb in ancient Egypt, which were given to the Kamut Wheat Company, that they planted them and nurtured them. And this is the old-fashioned, non-genetically modified wheat, and also not crossbred with other varieties to make it more uh, drought-resistant, drought-resistant and being unadulterated in more healthy ways, etc. People believe this, 
and a lot of organic stores bought their wheat for their products, but after years, the Kamut Wheat Company admitted that the whole story was fictitious. However, it does, does, does seem to be true that, their, that their, their wheat has different ratios of their different types of gluten and is healthier. But the expert that I contacted, this gentleman told me, said that she believes that the Kamut wheat actually has a higher gluten contact, content, nearly 80%. Regular wheat has 70%. And they felt that the, the Kamut wheat has 80% gluten. I could not find any test on record for the gluten content of Kamut wheat, but I did contact the USDA, and I am awaiting their answer. I then decided to contact you because uh, you have many connections I don't have, and I'm hoping you can help. So right away, I reached out to, all, to the different cautious organizations, and they responded to me that they're going to look into it right away. So they said they're going to look into it on Monday, which was today. I don't know the results yet. But we'll see. We're going to see where that goes. Now, again, what's the problem? The problem is that we have a claim that it's, uh, you know, that it's only got one percent of gluten, and we see that kamut, just like uh, regular wheat, has plenty of gluten, seventy to eighty percent. And so the question is, what is this all about? That was where I was standing on this topic as of twenty minutes ago. I didn't know any more about it than that, but then I got this email at 5.58, just before we went on the air. I didn't have a chance to read it. I'll just tell you a little bit about what it is in here. Um, obviously, they're going a little further into it and actually explaining what's going on. Now, this gentleman wrote an email to somebody, and I'm not sure who it is. Will you please check this out? And do you know of a lab near Brooklyn that checks for gluten? Uh, it seems there's a certain company, I-N-E-W-A, I-N-E-W-A dot C-A, which is Canada. This website in French is the basis of the 1% gluten claim. And here is a translation from Google Translate. So now we found out where the whole thing came about, which is very interesting. And, and the letter that I, the email that I wrote to the Kaiser's agencies challenged this thing and said, you know, if it's not really the 1%, then we have a, an issue maybe of health over here in the sense that you're promoting that this is uh, gluten-free, and if it's not really gluten-free or close to it, then uh, there could be implications if uh, celiac eats it and get sick and uh, decides to sue the people who were giving me lunch. So here is the story of where the 1% claim comes from. In Niwa, the alternative bakery committed to offering its customers high-quality organic breads without GMOs, coloring, or preservatives. Niwa is constantly innovating to offer delicious alternatives to consumers with special needs. Made from the best organic ingredients, our breads will not only satisfy your appetite for tasty products, but they also fit perfectly into a healthy lifestyle. I'm not going to go on to the whole thing here, but maybe it's worth hearing on the line. 
Whether you're looking to increase your protein and fiber intake or consume foods with a low glycemic index, we've got you covered. We are also proud to be able to provide baking solutions for the following conditions. It mentions the celiac disease, etc. Now, here's where they're getting into their claim. Gluten intolerant, in other words, if you are gluten intolerant, you can't have gluten. We have solutions. Low bread, gluten syntec logo. Gluten is a mixture of proteins, mainly prolamins and glutenins, which are used to make bread rise. However, only the fraction of prolamins is allergenic in some people. The glutenin fraction is a good source of protein. Like cholesterol, there's a good and a bad gluten. In order to find an alternative to gluten-free for its gluten intolerant its customers, INIWA has undertaken a joint project with the prestigious, prestigious Syntec Laboratory and subsidized by the Quebec Ministry of Agriculture. As part of this project, and he made two interesting discoveries. Okay. One, Corazian wheat, also called kamut, contains far less bad gluten, the prolamins, than modern wheat. And number two, the digestive enzymes in the sourdough break down the gluten proteins. So they have two things going for them. Less bad protein, and the sourdough somehow affects the bad proteins, which is something I read about elsewhere. By combining these two factors, Iniwa has been able to develop a fermentation protocol that reduces the bad gluten content of a whole grain bread by a minimum factor of 16, which gives less than 1% gluten, 10,000 ppms. Six products are based on this protocol, and thus offer a tasty compromise to gluten-free bread for people suffering from intolerance but not diagnosed with celiac disease. And, then, and they mention a number of their products. So in other words, their claim is that it's less than 1% gluten, and uh, that's the bad gluten, I suppose, and it's if for people who are not diagnosed as celiac, it would be acceptable. Uh, are you celiac and should avoid gluten at all costs? And Iwa has thought of you with its quinoa bread. So they're making a quinoa bread and they avoid it. And it goes on and on and on. I don't have time for this, uh, for, for reading it for you people. I'm sure you're not interested to that extent. Uh, there's plenty of uh, material here on their website. So it seems that they are behind this, I mean, the company makes it, I assume. I didn't check the, the label, because the label that was sent to me doesn't say the Aniwa name, but I assume that's where it is. I assume he researched it, my friend researched it down to the source, and yes, there was the 1% claim that was from the company itself, and yes, it's not true. It's their evaluation based on their studies. It's not a simple 1%. It's a question of bad gluten, versus good gluten, and it's uh, their idea that the sourdough breaks it down. So I have no idea what, the, what this is really based upon. 
I see, though, that the company is claiming the 1%. Now, what's going to happen in this situation? Will celiac people use this, and is it dangerous for them? I don't know. Will the conscious agencies tell them that they have to, they have to make some kind of change, make it more clear in their little sticker? By the way, it was a sticker. It wasn't on the printed package. I don't know. But we understand now what's happening. So, yes, the conscious agencies, two of them now, are scrambling around to find out the information that my friend got, and we'll have to transfer it over to them and see what they're going to do with it. If there's any resolution to this, I will let you know. But this is a real issue, and I, and I saw that they jumped on it when I told them because they realized that there's a legal implication, and I told them that the people who got, if they would get sick from this would uh, definitely sue. I mean, it may die even. I remember the, that story. I mean, maybe maybe you people who are listening here are too, are too young to remember it. It took place over 40 years ago. And uh, maybe the people do remember it or forgot about it, if, even if you heard it once. But that was a story with a, a product that was uh, supposedly parva, advertised parva with a very, very good hashkocha for some reason. It wasn't. It was produced on equipment, da da da, the dairy, and the child died. So that's how we came aware of this at that time. But it was 40 years ago. Today, I don't think they would get away with it. I think the people would sue for sure, and they would probably collect millions of dollars. Next topic. Uh, I want to share with you a different thing. I mean, that was investigating. I, uh, this is a little bit easier. I can mention the names here. It seems that there's a product that Dole puts out. I don't know if you remember, about a year ago, we announced, I announced it here on the radio, put it in the magazine, and, the, and on, on my cautious monthly. It seems that Dole stopped m- making under the OU in June of last year, I believe. Um, they, 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 they ceased the Hushkoha because they started putting in grape juice, not kosher grape juice, into their uh, the dole um, fruit cups. And until that time, it was a very common thing. And we came across it because somebody had got it in a hospital setting, I believe it was, or in a senior citizen center or a rehabilitation center. One of those centers, they got into it, and they said that this is not with Ashkocha, and we had to report it to the to the reported it to the people who ran that uh, that uh, facility. I reported it to the people in the uh, kitchen area, and people who were in charge. I don't know if they have Ashkocha on the place itself, but they were putting together kosher packs to send out. And, yes, the woman said to me, yes, she knew it was uh, changed, and she identified, and she actually had taught all the people there, but one of her workers made a mistake, so that they did have it in the store, in the, I'm sorry, in the, in the facility, they were giving it to the non-kosher patients. Unfortunately, it ended up in the hand of the kosher patient. So that was one story from last year. Now, this gentleman contacted me, a young fellow who's in business, and what he does is he buys closeouts. So he was looking around, and he saw that these the dough mandarin orange fruit cup, and he saw some, some different packaging, and some had an OU on it, some didn't have an OU. And his assumption was that there's some kind of error that happened here. 
they forgot to put it on, or they put the OU on, but not really under the shkacha, because last year they took it off. So it is a, it was a, it, it was a good question. It's a good question because we knew that last year was it, it lost the shkacha. So now what happened here? So that's what he sent me, um, and this is what I sent on to the uh, to the OU. I received an inquiry from someone in the food business who raised the question. He saw for sale Dole Mandarin Orange Fruit Cup dated, used by 2021. So obviously it wasn't so outdated, right? Uh, bearing the OU. Older fruit cup means that the used by dates were earlier, which means, let's say, it was the used by dates were up, or they're going to be up in 2020. So, in other words, uh, earlier dates did not have the OU. So the question is, now is it going back to the OU? Because the 2021 has it. The 2020s don't have the OU. Or is it going the other way? I went to your website. Now, this is me writing. And cannot find the product listed as OU. <laughs> That's a good question, right? It doesn't. The OU doesn't claim it's theirs. So if they don't claim it's theirs on the website, so then uh, maybe the other, it's an unauthorized OU. So yeah, I was really caught in the middle. Let me review it so you didn't you didn't miss it. If you if you have an OU on it, then it should be certified by the OU. If it's certified by the OU, it should be listed on the website. Because the website has all the products that the OU certifies. If it's not on the website, presumably it's not kosher certified. But yet it has an OU. And then last year it didn't, and now this year it does, and it's not listed. So did it go on? Is it going off? I mean, where, where are we holding here? That was the question. So is it, does, the, does the product have an authorized OU? Have you started certifying the Dole Food Cups again? It's not on your product database. So here's what the rabbi from the OU answers. Yeah. This is what he answered me. Dear Wickler, yes, this this is a product of Thailand. Um one second, I thought it was me actually writing up the the no. The answer is like this. Okay. Um, here's from the few words from the OU. The products are made at several plants. Some plants tra- transition to non-kosher grape juice. Some of the dough is a made in plant with non-kosher grape juice, and they stopped using the OU much earlier than others who had big supplies of kosher juice and transitioned later, which means that right now the OU doesn't certify the Dole Mandarin Orange Fruit Cup. doesn't certify any of the fruit cups, I believe, the Dole. Dole. But some of the plants on the Dole were still under OU, and and they're being produced. So you'll have now, with OU, without OU, the ones with the OU were produced under the OU, and the ones without the OU were not produced under the OU, but it's no longer certified at all for the future. So it was a question of, this is very strange to me, but what he's, te- he's telling you is that not just they have multiple plants, but they stopped being certified at different times. In other words, the OU was technically certifying some product with the name Dole with the OU on it, 
At the same time, it was making new product without the OU. Figure it out. That's, that's the fact. That's why we have to, you know, do our little bit of investigation. Moving along, I'm going to share with you um, about, maybe we'll save that one towards the end if we get to it. I, I want to tell you a, few, a little thing that I did come across from the OU, which I thought was interesting. These are a few highlights. Again, I'm, between you and I, um, I'm just concentrating on what I want. So this is not a fair representation of what the OU writes. But this is what you will find on the website. I'm just choosing to take only certain ones, from this, uh, select certain ones from what they write on their website. It's a summary of OU insect checking policies. Um, really, it's dated 2016, but they don't have a newer one. So just giving you a couple of uh, highlights. Again, a lot of what they say, uh, I hope other people have different opinions. I don't want to confuse you. So I just chose a few things I thought were interesting that are on the OU website about checking. When checking is required, the entire vegetable, fruit, or berry must be checked. When checking large quantities from the same case, it may be permissible to check samples from a single batch. The minimum amount of sampling units is three. That's OU policy. Number two. It is permissible to puree fruits, vegetables, or berries that only occasionally harbor insects. That question occasionally is a key word, and you need to have rabbinical guidance on what's called occasionally. If pureeing is part of, of following a recipe and the intent is not to eliminate insects. But this is one of the biggest misunderstandings people have. They say, listen, there may be bugs here, but I can just crush it. Like a lot of things that we eat, we may be eating in, the, in, our, in our tomato paste or ketchup or peanut butter or whatever it is, orange juice. We may be eating little teeny pieces of insects that were unfortunately found their way in there. So what's so terrible that we go ahead and crush this whole thing up? The answer is you're not allowed to crush it up. And, uh, and uh, if, if, it has, if, it, if you think that it has insects in it. You can only crush it up if you think that it doesn't have insects there. Possibility it will have. Okay, so for that you're allowed to crush it up. But it can't be crushing it up in order to be able to avoid the shyla of checking the vegetables. So again, let me read what the OU wrote. It is permissible to puree fruits, vegetables, or berries that only occasionally harbor insects. In other words, these kind, this kind of berry or whatever it is, it only, only sometimes has insects. If pureeing is part of, a fo of following a recipe and the intent is not to eliminate insects. In other words, if your, your goal is, I want to be from, I don't want to eat insects, so I'm going to take all of the things, put them in the company that says triple washed. And sometimes triple washed means in the same water, which means that the, the, the insects would still be on or come back on again. So it doesn't really work perfectly unless you really had change of water, and the system is proven to remove enough of the insects. If it hasn't been proven, it's just wishful thinking. 
Again, Washington cannot be relied upon to reduce infestation unless they are adequately proven to be effective. And it's proven is by our standards, not by the Deutsche standards. Two more things from the OU on there. This is already from 2018, but it's also, both are still on the website. When inspecting large quantities at a restaurant, that's not for us, I mean, that's people in the back room, right? It's permissible to rely on sampling for a chazaka check. When inspecting very large quantities at a factory, it's also permissible to rely on statistical sampling in lieu of a chazaka check. So in other words, this is beyond us exactly what they mean, but they mean that they, in, their, in those situations when you work with a proper amount, certain amount, and we're also talking about experts in the field of checking insects, they do rely on these things. But it's not advisable for the average household to use such a checking method. Number eight, someone that has, this is cute, by the way, someone that has especially keen eyesight must certainly avoid insects that he can see, but others cannot. In other words, if I see it, it's a bug. And I've been checking, you know, for 35 years I'm checking, and I see, I can see the smallest thing across the room. So if that's true, then I can't eat it, because to me, I know it's a bug. However, this does not automatically mean that those insects are forbidden for others. Now, I don't know if he means that you're supposed to give it to them on a plate and say, you see it. I don't think he means that. I think what they're saying, trying to say is that your being able to see something this size doesn't mean necessarily that if the average person can't see it, that it is a bug for the average person. The person who sees it, it's definitely a bug. But for the person who can't see it, do they have to worry that I can't see it because I wasn't trained as well enough? I'm not a machia. I, didn't, I don't have an excellent eyesight. That's, that's the question they're dealing with there. We go on now to a very interesting piece, which I have from, uh, this is historical already, uh, from, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece written by, uh, by Yehuda Spitz. Now, Rabbi Yehuda Spitz, I, I've mentioned many things he's written. Uh, he's a phenomenal writer. Uh, Torah knowledge is fantastic. He's a Deutsch Koyal, and he's got a way with words, and his research is impeccable. And he bothers me very often on, on some topics. Just he just sent me an email the other day about something we wrote in the last issue. And in Baruch Hashem, he's got tremendous kaisas. Everybody should read his material. It costs nothing to read it. All is coming out with far safer, but right now you can see all this free on or edu. O H R dot E D U. That's uh, that's uh, the Osameach uh, website. He's the one Rosh Kolo there in Osameach. Again, O H R dot E D U, and look for Manish. I'm sorry, it's not Manish. That's the father, the Yehuda Spitz. And on this piece, I'm telling, going to tell you is about potatoes. And you never knew so much. After today, you, you're going to know so much about potatoes more than you ever knew in your life. The potato, you, everybody knows about the history of the potato. I'm not going to go through it. I didn't, obviously, people did not know about potatoes before the 1500s. And you talk about Europe. Obviously, they existed in the world. But until, you know, you hit Europe, where it was the center of life, 
Uh, it was only in the 1500s, late 1500s. And of course, everybody knows about how how it took off, and it became a mainstay, and how we got the Russian vodka from it, and uh, so many interesting things that developed the, the potato. But we're not interested in the history of the potato, even though uh, he, he does take us a little bit into that area. The Rabbi Spitz is concentrating on the question about the bracha, and kidneys, and bishalakim, which are the three areas that uh, are concerned to us. The bracha is extremely interesting. Now, I don't know anybody personally who doesn't make hadam on potatoes, but uh, obviously there were many people who did not make hadam on potatoes. And it's interesting to see why, how this developed and what's the, ra- what's the rationale this way and that way? It seems that uh, you know, the halacha says that if you don't know what the bracha is, you make hadam, make shahako. If you don't know whether it's hamotzi, bezonos, adamba, make shahako. When you're stuck, you make a shahako, if, if, but you're really supposed to learn it. You're supposed to work on it. And if you can't figure it out, you can always make a shahako. It seems that the oroch, of Nelson Meromi in uh, 1106, the contemporary of Rashi, he holds that he held that referring to the bracha of, of mushrooms and other food items that did not actually get the nourishment from the earth, that you make the bracha is shahako. So the aruch translates the uh, potato as tartuffle, not we call it kartuffle. He translated them as tartuffle. Um, the, so the to make a shahako on them it seems it seems that the oroch may have been referring to this and making a shahako on the uh, uh, see it seems that there's some confusion about the mush whether it's like the same word as mushroom or similar word and that's why uh, there's a confusion with mushroom the mushroom is a shahako because mushroom doesn't grow in the ground and it doesn't live from the ground it, it's located on the ground or on a tree and it and it lives from the air so the question is was is the potato similar anyway with Napoli of Rokshitz used to make a shahako potatoes the Sanzer and the Bubbaver those dynasties and the Kamanas Hasidim they all make a shahako even till today the Kloisenberg Rebbe the Salem Arov the Shaga Fivo Schneebaug they held that the bracha is shahako on potatoes. So you see a very large amount of making a bracha on, on, of shahako on the potatoes. The Kloisenberg Rebbe adds a reason to do so. He says, since a person can make flour out of potatoes, and potatoes satiate and are filling, it might be considered that the bracha is mizonos. I saw a discussion of that years ago when I told you about brachas. I saw a discussion among the Chassidish world about whether the bracha should be mizonos, and he's talking about the Kloisenberger Rebbe was concerned about it that it should be maybe it should maybe it should be mizonos, and the rule is, and this is the key point, very interesting, is that one if one is unsure whether the bracha is, he should make a shahako. So they decided to make it. They should. They felt there they should make a shahako because maybe it should be mizonos, just like uh, rice is mizonos. It's not 
not from the five grains. But maybe it's called Mezin Zion in Lashna Gemara. But maybe this too, but it was a mainstay of, of the people's lives in Europe, but maybe the bracha should be Mezonos. And since we're not sure if it's Adama or Mezonos, so maybe the best Eitzah would be to make Shahako. That's the opinion that the Kloisenberger Rebbe held. On the other hand, the Stipler, the Stipler Gon, strongly disagreed with that. And he said the, 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 the idea is of Mizonos is only known to be on rice. It's the only exception. And other foods, you can't make it a Mizonos, even if they're very satiating. It's, even though that's the concept, but you can't apply it and, and change the brook on anything else. But Chaim Safran, the commander Rebbe of Yerushalayim, his son, that's, that's of Chaim Safran, he said that if one makes a shahako, any food, he's yotze, to the Yavid. So, kosher cane, if a person would do it by potatoes, when the, all these other great rebbes said to do so, so he felt that it's appropriate to do it. But it seems that mushrooms is really nothing to do like potatoes, and not, it's growing, uh, the potatoes grow in the ground, and they're, they're a root, and they get, they get they nourish from the ground, and therefore, it's nothing to do with uh, nothing to do with mushrooms, and nothing to do with uh, rice or with any other uh, grain or so, or something of that nature. And therefore, we all of us pretty much end up making hadamas, except for some of those groups of chassidim that we just mentioned above. Now, the kidneyist thing is very interesting too, because you know, we, we, I mean, I'm, I'm around a few years when I started out as a the bucker and the and before any cautious magazine was in my head, you all remember that was a percussion taste of peanut oil with the okay on it. That was what everybody used. Then somebody says you can't use it because it is uh, from peanuts. And there were some people that said in Europe that peanuts are, are kidneys, but others said, I think Ramosha, that a derivative of kidneys. It wouldn't be necessarily the same thing. The oil coming from the peanut, maybe, maybe it'd be mutter. So maybe it wouldn't fall into the category. At that time, uh, we were, when we were we were learning with Rav uh, Shimon Eider, uh, he he was he, he told us that Rav Moshe Feinstein said an interesting thing. He said maybe there is a, maybe certain of these things are kidneys, like corn could be kidneyous. But and a derivative corn, corn oil, would also be kidneyous, maybe. But he said, Ramosha said, you can't say that a balua of a derivative of kidneyous is a problem for peso. And that meant this corn starch that's in the paper plates or the corn starch that's on the paper towels. The cornstarch would not be an issue because it's only a derivative. Uh, so I say balua. It's absorbed in something. And it's a derivative of kidneys. So it's like three steps removed from something that's only a chumra. Although we'll see, it's a big issue. The uh, the union uh, of kidneys. I'm going to try to finish this off. I think the time is moving along. So now let's go, first let's tackle what it is kidneys is all about. Well, everybody knows what it is. Uh, it seems that it started very early. According to uh, Rabbi Spitz, it 
the prohibition of the kidney is started the time of the Rishonim. Uh, he has here extensive footnotes, and he uh, says, uh, the Mordechai, the Ravid, Hagos Maimani, or Zarua, a whole slew of Rishonim are alluded to as being, and it means, it means in the Middle Ages, early Middle Ages, later Middle Ages, in that, all throughout that time there were already Ashkenazic Minhagim going, in other words, as far as we're going back, more than 500 years. This is a very old minute. So that's about not eating kidneys. Now here is a very interesting discussion. This is what makes Rabbi uh, Spitz so interesting. I'm going to tell you some wording. If you listen to it carefully, you'll learn a lot. How is this thing called kidneys referred to? What level, what status is it? So look what he says. The Kitzah Shulchan Aruch refers to kidneys as an isur, a prohibition. The Mishnah Brewer refers to it as a chumrah. Chumrah is like an, an additional stricture. And the Aruch HaShulchan calls it a geder, a protection, like a fence. Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank refers to it as a gezera, an injunction. Rav Moshe Feinstein refers to it as a minik, a custom. The Kloisenberger Rebbe talked about it as a takana. Takana means it fixes up something. They all maintain, though, that kidney is prohibition, prohibition is, is on all of Ashkenazic Jewry. The Orach HaShulchan says, once our forefathers have accepted this prohibition upon themselves, it's considered a gather midin Torah. Now it takes on some Torahical level because it became accepted as our way of life. That's how far this issue of the uh, of, of, of kidneys has gone. A gather midin Torah, words of the Orach HaShulchan. Amazing. Now, there are many reasons why things are kidneys. Something grows close to grain, or else it's stored together with grain, or it actually gets it mixed up with grain sometimes in the same container, or you cook dishes that are made from grain and kidneys and they look similar, or the kidneys can be ground into a flour. There's many, many reasons why they made something into, the, into a uh, they prohibited kidneys. Potatoes can be made into potato flour and potato starch. And, uh, and, they could, and you could bake a potato bread, technically. So why would potatoes not be considered kidneys? Because remember, we, don't, we eat our potatoes on pesos. Otherwise, we'd be bad if we couldn't have potato starch and we couldn't use the uh, potatoes on pesos. So why, why didn't we forbid it? If, if, it? if it's something that we do grind into a flour and we make, us, uh, we make what we call uh, uh, the potato starch. The Chai Yodam considered potatoes kidneys. The Chai Yodam. The Prima Goddam mentions that he knows of a custom that prohibits potatoes on Pesach as a type of kidneys. But the vast majority, majority of authorities didn't agree, and they say that you can use potatoes on Pesach. So the, the question is, why didn't they do, make potatoes a... Uh, uh, kidneys. They did it the peanuts. Peanuts weren't around at the time of the uh, of the original injunction of kidneys. 
And that's one of the reasons why it's not included. The Yosef is not included. But why is it that we, we went into this, we didn't go in this the area over here? So many people say, he doesn't, I don't think he refers to it exactly here, but many people say that it became a very major part of their lifestyle, and it was, it was came out impossible to, to, uh, to outlaw it for, for Pesach. The, all the stories we had about the Jews in, in the Holocaust, in the uh, concentration camps, using potato peels, Said matzah. You all heard the stories. All the all the things they did with potato. They gave up their ration for bread in order to have potatoes on Pesach. That was the mainstay. Anyway, uh, one reason why he does put out is that potatoes are only this one thing. There was a list of about five of them. I don't remember them. But uh, something that grows in the same area, can be confused for it, you make bread, all kinds of uh, reasons why you might, you might, why we will go there on kidneys. The proximity of the grain, they're commonly stored together, uh, the dishes look the same. I mean, I don't think mashed potatoes looks like uh, uh, macaroni. So, so, I mean, you're not going to get confused. So, but the, so there was the only thing we had is that it's ground to a flour. So that is one comparison to kidneys, but it's not so many, and therefore they didn't bother with it. Now the big question we did two, but the big question: how much will dissolve of it today? I don't know. But this is extremely interesting: is the question about bishalakum? Is there bishalakum on potatoes? So the main topic is, are potatoes what we call oile al-shulchan malachim? Are they something that will be served on a fan tries? Maybe it's only uh, it's not. Maybe it doesn't fit anywhere near the, uh, the, the hashibus of something that's oile al-shulchan malachim. So um, that's... Uh, the Chochmah Sadam, we'll start with the Chochmah Sadam, by Abraham Danzig, in the 1800s, ruled that potatoes are considered an important food item, appropriate for the for the nobility, and therefore their royal Therefore, there is bishul akum. The Chochmas Adam said there is bishul akum on potatoes. The Orach Shulchan or Yechiel Michel Epstein in the late 1890s in the Bardic had a, 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 a different opinion. He said, potatoes are the food of the common man. The nobles would only partake of them because there's so many around. They have to eat sometimes potatoes, but there's no inherent importance to it. And therefore, it's, we say in Yiddish, it's not something to, get, to write home about. And therefore, according to the Orach HaShulchan, it would not be Bishalakum. According to Chochem it would be Bishalakum. The Orach HaShulchan adds that it's entirely possible that the time and the place of the Chochmas Adam, a potato dish might have been considered a Shulchan and it would be Bishalakum in his time, but by, by the time of the Orach HaShulchan and the place of the Orach HaShulchan, he said, in where I am, in this day and age, which is not too many years later, but it is uh, almost 100 years later, the early 1800s to late 1800s, nine, almost 1900. So that almost 100 years, life changed. 
and today, according to him, it would not be Choshev. The Maharsham, Rav Shalom Mordechai Shavuot in the 1890s, same time as the Chacham Sadam, besides the Alpha Shulchan, that he was in the Ukraine. He said a cooked potato was definitely oil al Shulchan Malachim. If it was roasted, it wasn't oil al Shulchan Malachim. But cooked, yes. I don't understand that too well. I mean, to us, you know, it tastes good this way, it tastes good that way. I don't know what, it, what they meant exactly. The Debatina Rov, now Debatina Rov is, is not here for, for a number of years now. Um, and he passed away 30, about 30 years ago. Debatina Rov understands is to include potatoes roasting in oil. And is that nowadays, any type of fried potato, French fries, for example, would be definitely not Ola Shulchan Malachim. So there's a, he is Makel, the Debatina Rov, and considers it not Ola Shulchan Malachim, at least the, at least the one that's fried. Rav Yosef Elio Henkin and Rav Ovadia Hedaya Yaskil Abdi seemed to accept the Orach Shulchan's position that it's no longer Orla Shulchan Malachim. Therefore, there's no problem with uh, Goy cooking. The Shmuel Halevi Vosner and Ramosha Sternbuch are Machmir for the Chachmas Adam's opinion and say that we do have Orla Shulchan Malachim. And uh, especially, you know, fried potatoes like French fried potatoes and everything. And you should be Machmir. It should be noted that Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky and Rav Moshe Feinstein seem to rule that French fries and even potato chips are Orel Shulchan Malachim, and they shouldn't—they have a Bishul Akam issue. Rav Moshe Feinstein and Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky seem to say that it's, uh, the potatoes would have a Bishul Akam reason for a different reason. They do seem to accept that nowadays potatoes are choshev. That's what they seem to feel. Rav Yosef Sholom Eliyoshev, he was Machmir also, for a different reason. And he, he says, uh, now, now he quotes my Rebbe, Zatzal, he says, likewise, it is known that Rav Asher Zimmerman Zatzal also deemed potato chips as requiring Bishal Yisrael, which I certainly didn't know. My Rebbe was uh, on top of the Bishal Yisrael and the Yashin issues from the very, very earliest days. Rav Yisrael Belsky and Rav David Feinstein disagree with this assessment, and they hold that fried and roasted potatoes today uh, are not oila shulchan malachim, and there wouldn't be a bishul akum. That's Rav David Feinstein and Rav Yisrael Belsky. That's how. That's Benchaim Benchaim. It's a little strange that Rav David wouldn't necessarily say like his father. I don't know. I didn't hear it from him, so I didn't see it in writing, so I don't know what this is all about, but that's what he claims here. Many other well-known postgim expressly ruled leniently regarding potato chips. They include Rav Moshe Stern, that was Debat Sinarov, we said it earlier, Rav Usher Weiss, the Minchas Usher, Rav Pesach Elio Falk from Gateshead, Max Elio, and Israel Pesach Steinhandler and the Avnei Yashpe, and the OU is also Rav Yochanan Vosner of Montreal, the Chaye Halevi, and the OU is also Makel on the Bishal Akum aspect of potato chips. Seems that uh, the Star K and the OK and the COR in Toronto. 
seem also be Makel, and similarly the Swiss organization called IRGZ in Zurich, uh, they also seem to be uh, Makel on the potato chips. So that really is the end of that story. And the, it's a very interesting footnote here, but I don't have time to read it to, to, to you people. It's footnote number 45. Maybe we have a couple of minutes and it's worth, worth seeing it, but uh, I didn't have a chance to look at it myself, so maybe I'll let you people do it on your own if you get to number 45. We only have a couple of minutes left. Just let you know that we're working very hard on, on the next issue of the magazine, and it has a lot of COVID-19 issues, and it uh, ties in a lot about some of the people who are NIFTA and talking about uh, some of the newest, new people who are taking over in Hashkacha. And I just want to share with you, since it is only a few minutes left, at least a little bit about something that ties in very indirectly to our lifestyle today. Now, we are all suffering because of these protests and the riots, and it brought to mind, talking with somebody today, and it brought to mind, and I decided to look it up, what really happened in 1902. In 1902, Yaakov Yosef was nifter, and there was a funeral. According to some, it says there were 120,000 people who attended. I don't know if that stems with the rest of the material that I saw, but it talks about 6,000 6, people in a funeral procession, which probably went on for miles. So maybe the 120,000 was at the Levi itself, or maybe they're putting two or two together. But in those days, 1902, 120,000 people, that is phenomenal. And they're taking a walk down, and they pass by a place called R. Whole Printing Press Company on Grand Street near the ferry. It seems that a, a, a fight developed and a riot developed, and uh, the police were called, and things got very much out of hand. And eight people were arrested. It seems that the people who were attacking the Jews were of the same persuasion as the policemen. I'm not going to tell you the... Uh, uh, who they are, but I think we might know who the policemen were in those days, what group they were. And the Jews were ending up on the raw end of the deal both ways. This is the way the story is told in one of the things that I read. When the procession reached the corner of Kent Avenue and South 6th Street, it was passing the building owned by former Mayor Worcester. Someone threw a heavy block of wood from an upper window which landed in the midst of the morning procession. The throng which had been stirred to the highest excitement by it, the attack in Manhattan, which I just mentioned before, set up a howl which could be heard for many blocks, and before the police could anticipate the action, charged on the building. In other words, the Jews charged the building. Captain Martin Short was nearby and had stationed the reserve police from neighboring precincts along the street, the angry mob of Hebrews, that's us, broke through the line of the policemen like paper and burst in the door of Worcester Building. Remember, he had thrown, they had thrown stuff down on, the, on people's heads from the top of the building. Captain Short called all the policemen within earshot 
and rushed in after them. Several blue coats stood at the door and with drawn clubs prevented the ingress of any more of the angry Hebrews, while Captain Short, with a squad of policemen, followed those who were already inside and in a few minutes had thrown them out through the door. Captain Short made an immediate investigation to learn the cause of the disturbance and found that the block of wood had been thrown by a man named William Price, a workman in the building. Before the arrival of the police at the upper story, Price had disappeared and could not be found. Captain Short has ordered his arrest. Doesn't sound like he ever got him. Maybe he did. And, it, and they, they talk about this thing. It was one of the most dramatic riots civil disobedience on the part of people who are attacking the funeral procession of the Rav Harashi of New York. My father, Allah Shalom, was there. I mean, he actually couldn't have been there. He wasn't there. He was, 1902, he wasn't there. But he heard the story, and he lived in that area. And this is well-known and well-documented, that the riots were caused by people attacking the Jews in the middle of a funeral procession with no respect for, for, for life or liberty of the Jewish people in America. And it, it, we have to understand that uh, the police could very well help as long as they're not taking the side. And if you study this, I, I studied a few of these articles, and it seems that they took the side of the people who were attacking the Hebrews. And therefore, when riots start, Jewish people have to be concerned that they're going to point to the Hebrews. And it's our job to make sure that nothing is in any way is going to reflect on us in a negative way when they're having these protests and riots. In any event, until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kasha's Magazine, Wishing you a wonderful week, and stay safe. Don't listen to the people who tell you that there is no more coronavirus. Unfortunately, if you'll, see, if you'll study it, you'll see that things are still going on, and extra precaution is necessary. Whatever you think is the appropriate or your doctors feel is appropriate, follow that. But don't fool yourself into thinking that nobody can get hurt. They can. Stay well, healthy, and next week in session we'll join you again on Kashrus on the air. Anywhere, anytime, for everyone. This is jrootradio.com. Got a toothache? Need a filling? Not sure where to go or who to trust? Visit Dr. Yehoshua Cantor, General and Family.